Good morning. Uh, my name is Josh Beakley. I'm here from Bethany Baptist Church, uh, sister church over there in Edwards. It's a joy to be with you. Uh, been ministered to by your staff on many occasions. Love them dearly. We're praying for Daniel and trusting that the Lord's using this time for him and his family uh, very well. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 7 this morning. Joshua chapter 7. <clears throat> Joshua chapter 7. We'll uh, begin uh, with the last verse of chapter 6, verse 27, and then we'll read the, the chapter of Joshua 7, right after the battle of Jericho. <clears throat> so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of the Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, don't have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Don't, don't make the whole people toil up there, for they're few. So about 3,000 men went up from there, uh, there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us in the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? And would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel's turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel can't stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they've become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You can't stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you should be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clan. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by household. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has because he's transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he's done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of the, Zer the, the clan of Judah and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites and uh, man by man and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near the household man by man and Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me what you've done. Don't hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought 
them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones and they burned them with fire and they stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Father, we come to you as sinners. We recognize we are in need of grace. We need your grace even to open our eyes to your truth, to understand it, to receive it, to practice it. And yet our hope rests solely on your grace. Father, we come desperate that your spirit would be with us and convict us, encourage us. And in the midst of our valley of trouble, may you show us a door of hope. May you teach us this morning about the forgiveness and love that's offered for those who turn from sin and turn to Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> she lives in an 11 by 7 foot prison cell, condemned to life without parole. 45 years old, sleeping on a bunk bed. 16 years ago, she was in her 20s, closet full of comfy sandals, uh, uh, silk slacks, trendy outfits. Now she tromps around in work boots, oversized khakis, regulation uniform. But fashion's a minor loss compared to how much she misses her family. Uh, when she was taken away, her oldest son was eight, daughter, six, her youngest only five. Now he's 21, a full-grown man, hardly a memory of what his mother was like before Pensacola. Over two decades ago, police had discovered some illegal substances with her, but at that time she was young and uh, she promised to stay clean, so they let her go, and she spent the next few years caring for her children. But one day, uh, the police discovered uh, that an ex-boyfriend was drug dealing, and that led them to a lockbox he'd stored in her attic, evidence enough to charge her with assisting the dealer, and she was found guilty. The judge required to give her the minimum sentence, life without parole. Even though the lockbox weighed uh, with drugs only, only at about half a gram. No leniency for a mother. No compassion for her children. No hope for release. The only room for mercy left by the law was 11 by 7 feet. The rest of her life left to wonder how justice could condemn her entire family. Even the judge felt the punishment didn't fit. He said so on record. The whole family condemned because of half a gram. But he couldn't just let it go. It was the law. The story of Achan makes people feel uncomfortable. It's cruel. It's callous. One man breaks an irrational law. An entire nation suffers defeat. 36 casualties. One angry God requires only Achan's execution, but his family, livestock, and the destruction of his possessions. All condemned because dad scavenged 700 bucks worth of currency in a pretty little cloak. Uh, punishment hardly seems to fit. To some, Joshua 7 makes God seem mean. His so-called justice is unforgiving, unnecessary. He's upset over one month's rent, so heads have to roll. The fury of his anger only quenched once a whole family's burned and buried. Most people come away from this chapter asking the same question. Why can't he let it go? Why can't he let it go? Compared to the sentence, the sin doesn't seem like that big a deal, but maybe that's where our problem lies. Uh, to understand this story, that's where we have to place our focus on sin. Uh, to have a right understanding of God, we must have a right understanding of sin. So that's the topic to which we direct our attention this morning, sin. She has undeniable appeal. Uh, her claims are alluring, enticing. Temptation irresistible for good reason. Uh, she offers amazing benefits, but sin's like a new prescription medicine. She works hard to maximize the benefits, but she works overtime to minimize the side effects. 
Sin promises to solve your problems, but in the fine print, so easy to overlook, the lasting side effects of sin are not mere possibilities, but guarantees. Joshua 7 is like a warning, a a testimonial about sin, a real-life account proving while her possible benefits are fascinating, her guaranteed side effects are fatal. Sin really offers only three guarantees. First, sin separates. It always separates. Sin separates. It always separates. This is the repercussion of sin. Unintended consequence that happens after the fact. This is the repercussion, separation. See, no sin is so small that it doesn't affect you or others. Sin's never in a vacuum. It's like a pebble thrown into a lake. The ripples extend far beyond your sight. No matter how small the ripples happen, sin does things. They're inevitable. Separation, like a shirt tearing, like a plate shattering, a dividing wall being erected. Sin separates. You know what that feels like? The separation? You're in the car. You over here, you over there. Don't touch. Separation at home, marriages, and in divorce. Church members arguing over ministry decisions and end up leaving. They can't get along and they're angry at each other. Friends condemn each other to years of the silent treatment. Separation. Uh, Scripture doesn't shy away from separation. It's brought by sin. Adam and Eve, separated. Cain and Abel. Ham and Noah, Sarah and Hagar, Jacob and Esau, Leah and Rachel. Even when you think about that, sin separates, and sometimes it's not just physical. There's a story about one husband and wife who lived together in the home without speaking to each other for three years. Only when forced to, would they communicate through notes on a refrigerator. Sin separates. It always separates. And separation is what we see in this chapter. The cause of the separation is disobedience. Disobedience. The character who disobeys is Achan. A person whose detailed heritage is relatively uninteresting until we see its ominous reversal in verse 18. Achan, and the command he disobeys is from chapter 6, verse 17. He took what God explicitly uh, said should be devoted to destruction. So a command that that was given in the context of the battle of Jericho at a very important moment when they were about to take the city. He said very clearly, don't take this stuff for yourself, it's be given to God. See, see, they'd spent 400 years in the wilderness. And then they're coming to take the land of Canaan, the land God promised to them and to their uh, ancestors, the land in which they would dwell, in which the Messiah was to be born, in which God's presence would be restored. And for 400 years, the Canaanites there had been rejecting God's patience. And so now it's time for their judgment and for Israel's provision. And God's chosen mean to bring about the judgment is to use Israel as his sword. An efficient decision because it forced them to grow in faith, trusting God, and ensured the land wouldn't be desolated too soon. And as a result, both Israel and Gentiles would recognize God's glorious power to save unworthy sinners. So they take Uh, the city of Jericho, and they're supposed to leave the first fruits. Why is this command uh, to let the the spoil get spoiled, to give it to God instead of taking it? Well, the reasons were twofold. First, uh, possession and protection. Possession, first, because the possession of these objects would be given to God, not so much so that God could have the silver or the gold, but because this was the first victory that they had to show and secure that God had possession of their hearts. He wanted possession of their hearts. And second, protection for their homes. Uh, Their protection is dependent upon obedience. They're supposed to keep the covenant. Safety only guaranteed when they obeyed. And the danger of not doing so was that chapter 6, verse 18, they themselves would become like the Canaanites devoted to destruction. So for the possession of their hearts and the protection of their home, God calls for them to devote the first things uh, to God, to give it to Him. So then we find the nature of Achan's disobedience here is in chapter 7, verse 1, breaking faith. The people broke faith, betrayal, a a contract severed. The same word used uh, by God in Numbers 5 for unfaithfulness and adultery. Israel is spiritually unfaithful. It's not a new concept. No one was closer to God than Moses. 
God's friend, talk face to face. But in Deuteronomy 32, God denies him entrance into the promised land because in front of all the people in Numbers 20, he broke faith. Same word. Now, why is all Israel included with Achan in breaking faith here? Well, it's because God's covenant, his agreement, his contract is made with Israel, treated together as a unit. They enjoy God's blessings and curses together. That's the deal. And Achan's disobedience brings separation. Separation. And what do I mean by separation? What does that look like? Well, uh, there's a lot of destructive results brought by separation, but here we see at least three. First, spiritual disaster. Spiritual disaster. Uh, The most dangerous of the three. Deliberate defiance against God's man yields divine displeasure. And so verse 1, the anger of the Lord burns. Burning anger manifested by divine distance. See, up until this point, Israel's divine mission to conquer Canaan met with success because God was present with them. His presence was symbolized through the covenant in the ark. And so the ark led them across the waters of the Jordan, around the walls of Jericho, symbolizing God's presence to help them succeed. And that's where chapter 6 ends. Verse 27, so the Lord was with, present with Joshua, as he promised. But that victorious presence to bless is what's at stake in this chapter. Verse 12 is the hinge of the chapter. God says, I will be with you no more. Now, to be clear, God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere, everywhere at the same time. But that doesn't mean he's present everywhere in the same way. He's present some places to sustain, some places to bless, and some places to discipline. And Scripture describes that presence to discipline as His presence being far or being removed. Divine discipline described through uh, distance. God says, I won't be with you. Sin resulted in spiritual disaster. And second, it results in in, in corporate defeat. Corporate defeat. Look at verse 2. So we see here, this is the decision that leads to the defeat. Joshua sends some spies out. They go to look at the strategic military ridge point called Ai, a city of about 12,000 people we learn in chapter 8. And the spies come back confident. Verse 3, we can take this place easy. Don't send a lot of guys up there. I mean, this is a little place. We just took out Jericho. Just a few guys up there. That'd be okay. And their confidence is understandable. I mean, they supernaturally conquered an impenetrable fortress. Yeah, we got this next one. Their leaders, God-driven. Their mission, God-given. And we might jump to a conclusion. I know what their problem was. But I'd I'd say be cautious. Uh, Too many people draw the deduction that misattributes their defeat to pride. Oh, they they suffered failure because they were like a, an arrogant sports team. I mean, they underrested their opponents. You know, they send their subs instead of their starters. And, and I think that misunderstands the problem. Israel wasn't defeated because of brash confidence. They were defeated because of broken covenant. They weren't defeated because of military foolhardiness. They were defeated because of spiritual foolishness. It wasn't because they lacked support from men, but because they lacked support from God. Corporate defeat. In verse 4, 3,000 sent, all fled in defeat. The total deaths incurred, 36. People perish. The sin kills. The physical effects, a harsh reality, it, it hurts people. I mean, sin always has bigger repercussions than you think. When you throw a rock into a lake, the ripples go beyond where you can see. And, and, and then women lose their, children, their husbands, and, and, and children lose their fathers, and the army loses a battle, a nation loses its confidence. Physical effects so severe because the sin is so serious. Flagrant defiance brings furious discipline. Think about it. Achan just witnessed a miracle. He saw how God supernaturally destroyed walls. And directly afterward, he sinned egregiously. See, miracles alone cannot motivate. Miracles alone cannot motivate. Even the divine wonders of Jericho were not enough to keep men from sin. In fact, without faith, victory invites vulnerability. 
Because it's too easy to mistake victory for invincibility. Just because God used us to do something amazing yesterday doesn't mean that we're free from the danger of sin today. You see, how long after Israel saw God on Mount Sinai before they constructed a golden calf? Miracles alone cannot motivate the sinful hearts of men. Jericho and the victory, it doesn't minimize this sin, it maximizes it. In verse 5, we see the discouragement that follows. It's partly because of the loss of men, but also partly because of the loss of reputation. I mean, weakness invites war. And, and up until I, they had been uh, victorious, but now their blood's in the water and they're in foreign territory and the sharks are on the way. The analogy of, of their hearts is described as like melting like water, which up until this point was the reaction of their enemies. See, they're discouraged because the roles have been reversed. Now Israel's like Canaan. Now they're devoted to destruction, just like God said, chapter 6, verse 18. Corporate defeat and spiritual disaster. Now corporate defeat and then third, emotional distress. Emotional distress. Look at Joshua's response in verse 6. Deep distress. He and all the leaders ahead of the ark, the symbol of God's presence, and he tears his clothes. And he falls on his face and they put dust on their heads and they wait before God all evening, emotionally broken. And they're crying out in, in doubt, in despair, in desperation, praying. And in verse 7, he says, why have you done this? It doesn't make sense to me. I can't see your good wisdom. Why? There's, there's an expression of doubt toward God. And it's sorrowful. He says with the cry, alas, I what? Why? Sorrowful doubt. And it's respectful, though, still. He says, he says Adonai Yahweh, his covenant name. And it's honest. He says, Look, from what I can see, you've led us into an ambush. Why would you bring us here to be destroyed? I don't get it. And sometimes when we're suffering and failing, we don't know why. And it's wrong to conclude automatically that it's because of sin like Job's friends. But we do need to ask God and we cry out to Him. We see Joshua's emotional distress. Uh, sorrowful, respectful, honest doubt, but it's complex. He also has some despair. He doesn't just ask why. He, he cries out with despair. He says, would that we had been happy before we came here. If only, I, I wish we, we'd been back there. I mean, our only retreat is blocked by a river that you opened and closed. And now we're here, doomed. It's better to be cut short than cut off. Doubt, despair. And in verses 8, eight and 9, you see desperation desperation. What are you going to do now? First, he makes a desperate appeal to God's heart, and he says, we're going to die. Do you care about us? And, and then a desperate appeal to God's honor. He says, what about you and your name? Will you keep your promises to us? Will you defend your honor for yourself? Two great things to cry out to God. We see it in the Psalms time and again. It may sound a bit similar to Israel's complaints in the wilderness, but complaining to God is not the same thing as complaining about God. And Joshua knows where to go. He's discouraged, but he's not afraid to ask God to act. And when God's people cry out, God responds. He can't resist. But we see here the, the separation brought by sin, spiritual disaster, corporate defeat, emotional distress. Just three results. It, sin separates. It always separates. But in the midst of this separation, don't miss God's merciful providence. Look back at verse 3. Joshua sent some spies. And it turns out they weren't very good ones. They gave some bad advice to send less men. But this isn't the first time spies were sent. In chapter 2, Joshua sent spies to check out Jericho. But they weren't exactly world-class spies either. I mean, they were discovered as soon as they arrived. After they were given their mission, both sets of these spies failed in less than two verses. But can you see God's mercy in that? His providence? God allows, he permits bad spies to protect his people from worse peril. If they'd sent more men, the problem was God's presence, then they probably would have suffered a greater loss. The problem wasn't lack of military power, but lack of spiritual presence. And it's merciful because God allows Israel's defeat. He exposes their sin early on with a weaker opponent. You know, let them wait and let the sin grow and harden them until they're destroyed. It's, it's loving discipline here to expose the sin. 
But we see here that this sin, it separates. It's separating them from God. Sin separated Israel from God's presence to bless them. If you do not believe in Jesus, you are separated from God. Our world is full of spiritual and physical separation because our world is full of sin. But the beauty of Jesus is that he bridged that gap. He, he, his death tore down the temple veil that separated us from God. Jesus, because of God's forgiveness, offers us uh, uh, no longer a need to suffer spiritual separation or even relational separation. He teaches us forgiveness so that we can love God and love neighbors as designed to reflect God's glory. But that forgiveness begins by acknowledging the repercussions of sin, that sin separates. It always separates. Kids, your sin hurts your family. It separates. And students, your sin hurts leaders and teachers. Your sin affects other people, what you watch, what you read, uh, how you live. It, It hurts people. See, hidden sin is not harmless sin. Secrets at work harm a wife and a family. Uh, Separation in relationships is because of sin. And it's impossible to enjoy sin without sacrificing true intimacy. Sin separates. It always separates. Sin only makes three guarantees. Separates. And second, it shows. It always shows. Sin shows. It always shows. This is the revelation of sin. The revelation of sin. Verses 10 through 23. All sin will be made known, disclosed, revealed. Secrets don't stay buried. Skeletons don't stay hidden. Sin shows, it always shows. It's like a jack-in-the-box that pops out. You think the song is over, he's not coming out. Boom! Like the little kid who's hiding under the covers. He's supposed to be hiding. Can't help but just giggle and say, I'm over It's like the ring that Gollum carries. It wants to be found. See texts and photos on our phones, statements on our credit cards, the sites in our browser histories, the copies that we quote in our papers, the deceitful slander whispered to our friends. Sin shows, it always shows. Nothing stays hidden. Abel's blood cried out from the ground. Joseph was betrayed, and later in Egypt, all came to the front. Uh, Someone saw Moses bury the body in the sand. Nathan exposed David's cover-up, saying, You're the man, and Jesus arrived at the well, knowing every affair that the woman had had. Sin shows. It always shows. In 1957, two police officers were murdered in Hawthorne, California. And detectives discovered a gun and fingerprint, but the murder went uh, free. He was never caught. For 45 years, the case went cold. But in 2002, new technology arrived, and the FBI was able to use an expanded database, searched for prints. They found a match for a partial left thumbprint. Learned the murderer never committed another crime, just went back to his hometown in Columbia, South Carolina, where he now lives in a suburban home, retiree grandfather. They come knocking at the door. Two L.A. officers were murdered in 1957. We're here to talk about that. He was shocked. He said, you're here about that? Past finally caught up. 68 years old, full confession. This sin shows, it always shows. And it shows because it's revealed by God. Why does God reveal sin? For protection. For protection. For protection of his people and for protection of his honor. He he reveals sin to protect his people. He answers Joshua's first question. Yes, I care about you. That's why I'm going to reveal this sin, because I care about you. And for protection of his honor. He says, yes, I care about my name. That's why I'm going to reveal this sin, because I care about my name. And perhaps what's most interesting in the chapter is the way that God reveals sin. The way that sin shows here. He does it predictably, very patiently, providentially, and then plainly. First, predictably, in verse 10. Joshua doesn't wait for months or days or weeks like Moses waited when he prayed 40 days on his face before God. God's response to Joshua is immediate. He says, get up. Get up. Not what we might expect. But it's almost as if God said, I told you this would happen. No surprise. I promised to be with you if you kept my word. So obviously someone disobeyed. 
And in verse 11, he, he calls this sin by name, reveals it for what it is. Israel's sin, they've transgressed my covenant. I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Someone stole from God. And now they've become his enemy. He's no longer with them. They're going to be destroyed. Not because of God's unfaithfulness, but because of theirs. Israel is in question, not God. And this isn't a surprise, it's what God promised. The sin is very predictable. The hinge of the passage, verse 12, I'm not going to be with you unless you put this away. And to say that this isn't that big a deal is to say that God's not that big a deal. When we say sin isn't a big deal, then neither is Jesus. See, they've traded. And they must choose now, either sinful pleasures or supernatural presence, but they can't have both. So we see God reveals sin predictably, but then he does it very patiently, patiently, through an early warning and then a slow unveiling. Look at verse 13. He gives this early warning. He says, prepare yourself and warn all the people to prepare themselves for tomorrow. See, this early warning, it exposes the nature of the sin. I know that it's a theft, and the necessary solution is going to be, you've got to get rid of this stuff it's got to be expelled. And then in verse 14 through 15, the process of discovery is going to be by elimination. And the impending judgment is execution. He just lays it out. This is what's going to happen tomorrow. And he, he tries to shock Israel awake by calling sin what it was outrageous. Wake this sinner up. This is a warning, an opportunity. I mean, this, this warning is so grave because of the gracious reason that it might wake this sinner up. God doesn't just strike Achan with lightning. He gives his early warning and he allows them an entire night to literally sleep on it, to expose himself and cry for mercy. Patience through an early warning and through a very slow unveiling. This investigation is announced publicly and then it progresses gradually. Look at verses 16 through 19. Ever so slowly from tribe to clan to household to individual, a slow process. And there's no need to go through all these motions. At any time, he could give himself up. Plenty of time to do so. God's compassion is unchanging. He promises in Proverbs 28, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Look, God reveals this sin so patiently, and yet Achan holds out. Why? It seems to be either one of two reasons. First, maybe he doubts God's goodness. Maybe he's afraid and, and doubts his goodness and doesn't believe he can receive mercy, but that shouldn't be the case. Because in chapter 6, verse 17, the same verse that commands Israel to devote everything to destruction, it reveals that Rahab, the unworthy prostitute who herself was once to be devoted to destruction, was to receive mercy because of her faith. Achan has reason to believe that God might have mercy. There's someone before him who's been rescued from this destruction. But could it be that he doubts God's goodness? Or perhaps he doubts God's power. Perhaps he believes he can still get away with it. I mean, why not? God's re revealing this so patiently. He's taking so long. And he's doing this providentially. I mean, he's not just coming in and pointing fingers. It's just happening through coincidence. The means chosen is by casting lots. Like rolling dice could have been just pot shards in a jar or by way of elimination, but it's working its way slowly, coincidentally. Now, we know that uh, from Proverbs 16, the lots cast in the lap, every decision is from the Lord. So this is God doing this. Why does he choose this way? Well, maybe he's giving him time, time for confession, but also because he's showing his, his providence that the odds of choosing lots, working their way down from all these people down to one guilty man are astronomical. So unlikely that everyone would know it's God, and especially Achan would know that it's God and have every reason to recognize what was coming toward him and to cry out for mercy. There's two words repeated several times in verses 14 through 18. First, there's the word brought near or come near. Same root word as uh, in your midst or among you. You have problems among you and now I'm going to bring you closer. I'm going to draw you near. And the second is taken. Uh, it could be like the word caught. So they're brought near and caught, brought near and caught. He brings near the clans and they're caught and brings near the households and they're caught and drawn near man by man until they're caught. Both words feel like a slowly tightening noose. Time's running out. 
that Achan holds out. Maybe he's taking his chances. Maybe he's hoping the lot won't fall on him. Maybe someone else will take the fall, as if 36 deaths weren't already enough. But this providential coincidence slowly tightens, and he's caught in his own trap. The man who took the spoils is now himself taken. And the sin revealed so patiently and so providentially now is revealed very plainly, very plainly, plainly in all of its disgrace and all of its detail. Think about the disgrace of this sin. It's inexcusable. It's irrational. It's unnecessary. It's inexcusable because of verse 16. Imagine the shock when the lots are cast and the tribe that's chosen is Judah. Judah? I mean, of all the names that people were whispering the night before, the last would have been Judah. I mean, they were the tribe with glorious heritage. Uh, the, the, The ancestor of repentance received the greatest blessing from Jacob, the tribe from whom the Messiah, the deliverer, was gonna come, not the destroyer. Inexcusable because of the heritage and their inheritance. Joshua 15 verses 1 through 12 shows that their land was the first given and the farthest reaching. I mean, they get the most stuff anyways. Why would they take stuff? This is inexcusable. And second, it, it's, it's irrational. I mean, the trade that he makes is irrational. It doesn't make sense. 700 bucks worth of stuff and a cloak? For what? He gives up spiritual relationship? All the miracles he saw at Jericho? He gives up his public reputation? He, he gives up the inner peace? Sleeping on that stuff? On his conscience, the death of 36 men? I mean, all for 700 bucks? It's irrational. It doesn't make sense. Uh, But sin never makes sense. You know, what about Ananias and Sapphira? God's doing awesome things, and they just want a little bit of land. Or David and Bathsheba. I mean, victory, and everything's great, and then what? He stays right. It doesn't make sense. Or Judas Iscariot? Everything, the king of the world, the hope of salvation traded for what? A bag of silver? Every sin's irrational. And this sin is irrational. Uh, it's exposed and shameful. So why do we do it? Why does he do it? Why do we do these things that don't make sense? It's because we believe a lie. We believe a lie. The same lie. It was used at the very beginning of time. You surely won't die. Whatever God said, not going to happen. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to pay the cost. Why risk an, irration, an, an enormous cost? Because you don't think it's going to happen. Why risk your family, your reputation, your career for one night, one night fling? Because you don't think you have to pay for it. You don't think it's going to come out. It's not going to show. Let's say it's lie. It didn't show. You won't pay for it. It's irrational. And third, it's unnecessary. It's unnecessary. It's not needed. It's pointless. Israel is supported by the God of the universe. He can give them anything they want, anytime. And in fact, he supplies in chapter 8, verse 2, exactly what he wanted. When Israel defeats I with God's help, they get to keep the spoiled livestock for themselves. If only Achan would have waited for God's timing, he could have had God in the spoils. Instead, he loses both. I mean, this is the plain revelation of sin and all its disgrace, inexcusable, rational, unnecessary. But it stop. He reveals in all its detail. Look how the plain details of this sin are exposed. In verse 19, the criminal is exposed. You find it's Achan. In verse 20, the crime is confessed. Yep, I did it. In verse 21, the crime's progression. Look at the verbs. He saw, he coveted, he took, he hid. Heard that before? Think of the garden. Anything changed. Satan knows what appeals to us. Uh, The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. And once our sin's plainly revealed, everyone knows what we were thinking and feeling and wanting. Our hearts are exposed. But sometimes even more shameful than the details of the crime are the details of the contraband. I mean, what was the price? What was the cost he was willing to pay to risk his life, betray his country? Verse 21, a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, weighing 50 shekels. That was the price. That's it. Hid it in his tent underneath. The, plains of, the, the plain just exposure of sin is always shameful. 
and, and exposed, not just through verbal confession here, but also through a physical investigation. It doesn't just end there. Messengers are sent in verse 22 to Achan's personal tent. And under his bed, they didn't walk, they ran like they just learned the location of a nuclear bomb in their camp. We've got to get this stuff out of here. We want to clear the curse. So they go into the darkness of the tent and behold, hidden in his tent underneath the silver and they unbury it, uncover it, and they take it and they bring it out of the tent and then bring it to Joshua and all of Israel lay it down before the Lord and everybody can see. That's what he was willing to sell us all out for. Since shows, it always shows. And there's plenty of verses to reiterate this truth. Hebrews 4, no, no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Psalm 90, our, our secret sins are in the light of your presence. In Luke, nothing's covered up that won't be revealed or hidden that won't be made known. God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And Numbers 32, perhaps the most scary verse for any of us, what Moses spoke to the Israelites when they promised they would do something, and he warned them and said, be sure your sin will find you out. Sin shows, it always shows. God revealed Achan's sin before all. And for us, whether we believe in God or not, there's a recognition that sin will be revealed. And if you don't want to give your life to Jesus, your sin cannot stay hidden. It's always going to be revealed. And even if it's not uncovered before you die, one day it is guaranteed that sin will show. But in this day, it often is revealed in this life. And electronic media and, and progress make that all too clear. But Christians are people who confess their sin. Not just once, but continually. We live in the light. We're not afraid of our sin because we know who paid for it. We know God knows all of our sin. He knew every sin of the woman at the well, of Zacchaeus, of the thief on the cross, and yet he still supplies grace. We don't fear being exposed because we embrace grace. When your friends tell you that, that you can lie and get away with it, or that you can lie and get away with it, they're not telling the truth. Sin shows, it always shows. When it feels like liars go unpunished, like cheating is rewarded, like partying goes undetected, it can't last. Sin shows, it always shows. And what you do on your own will one day be revealed. And parents, when you're caring for your children and being diligent, you can trust God. You don't have to go digging in every tent. There's a time when God will reveal sin and be praying for them and ready to lovingly point them to the Savior they need at the time. Sin will show, it, it will always show. It's guaranteed. It separates, it always separates, and it shows, it always shows. And third, sin scars. It always scars. This is the retribution for sin. The retribution for sin. Deserved punishment, penalty, the cost of sin. It's like those voicemails that you get that tell you you've won a cruise. Those emails that promise you a million dollars. There's always a catch. Some costs of sin are imposed by authority. You don't take out the trash, no video games tonight. You cheat on a paper, you get expelled. But other costs are just uh, imposed naturally. Uh, immorality yields physical diseases. Substance abuse lead to death. Sin scars, it always scars. The very first death was an animal slaughter to provide covering for Adam and Eve's sin. Our world is one giant geographic scar from a flood sent because of sin. Uh, descendants were cursed. Moses was forbidden entry to the promised land because of sin. Lot's wife turned to a pillar of salt. The people under Ezra had to break up their families. Sin scars, its consequences, retribution, there's pain. And the reason God judges sin is, is because of justice. Justice demands retribution. Justice for God and, and justice for His honor and for the victims, the 36 victims who died. He, he must have justice, righteous retribution, and He does it with intensity and impartiality. Look at verses 24 and 25. Righteous intensity. This is comprehensive, verse 24. Everyone involved is punished. Achan, all he owns, even his animals, his sons, daughters are stoned and burned. We know that 
God doesn't punish children for the sins of their father. Ezekiel 18.20 makes it clear. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteous of the righteous, the righteous of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So why? Well, I believe at this point it's probably best to conclude that the sons and daughters were somehow involved with or aware of the sin. In verse 24, they brought up his tent, singular, and it's possible since every possession is there, that maybe some of them were interacting or even sleeping in that tent as well. It's highly unlikely they knew, they knew that he had hidden these things uh, and, and they, they didn't know that he had hidden these things. It's, it's a corruption that's complicit, probably, familiar to the corruption of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. But God's intensity is comprehensive. He takes them all and, uh, and, and he uses with Achan, Joshua, this this Hebrew word play, he uses the word for trouble, which is achor. Achor, it sounds like his name, Achan. And he says, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. Trouble. This comprehensive trouble brought on uh, Achan's family, and it's uh, intense in such a way that it's conclusive. I mean, it's doubly repeated. They stone him with stones in verse 25, burn him with fire, and they stone him with stones. It's righteous intensity. And it's, it's righteously impartial. Impartial. It shows no one's above God's justice. No one's above God's justice. Think of two parallels. First, Achan compared to Moses. I mean, Moses broke faith, and Moses was God's friend, and God was willing to punish him to show no one's above his holiness, his justice. But then we compare Achan with chapter 2 of Joshua, Rahab. Uh, Rahab, the bottom of the earth, the prostitute, and she shows that no one's beneath God's mercy. Achan risked heavenly wrath to hide human spoils, and she risked uh, uh, human wrath to hide heavenly spies. One was the path of flesh, the other path of faith, and this shows just the righteous impartiality of God. You can't escape your sin, no one's above my justice, and yet no one's beneath my mercy. People want the church to be loving, and it should be. But Jesus warned the churches in Revelation to oppose sin within the church. There's grace and gentleness and love, but Paul teaches that flagrant sin should be dealt with. We don't judge those who are outside, but we recognize, Paul says, harsh words, purge the evil person from among you. Now, this isn't any sin. This is unrepentant sin. There's always grace, always hope, always mercy, but there must be repentance. Otherwise, love disciplines. That's the only path of love. We deal with sin gently, but if there is not repentance, the only thing love can do is to discipline like a loving father to draw them back to repentance because they need God. That's why God lives, gives, gives three warnings to prevent this judgment. Three warnings. First, there's the site, a physical memorial, a great heap of stones, just like Gilgal and Jericho, that they'll do at I memorial, warning God, uh, warning people of God's wrath, the site. And second, there's the sound. Uh, the place is given a new name, the Valley of Achor. Sounds like Achan, means trouble, the Valley of Trouble. It's meant to be a warning every time it's mentioned, the site, the sound, and the story itself. Uh, chapter 7, given to the Israelites uh, so that they could remember and be warned, but not only them, but also to us. 1 Corinthians 10, 6, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. For whatever was written in Romans 15 in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Hope. Where is this hope found? Well, the first picture is verse 26. Through Achan's death, the anger that burned has now turned away. And yet this chapter feels so dark. I mean, it began with the victory of Jericho, and now we're in the valley of trouble. Where is this hope? Well, this is not the last time that the valley of trouble is mentioned in the Bible. Proof is given years later in Hosea's prophecy. Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. When the nation would again wander from God and act unfaithfully like a prostitute, just like Hosea's wife, Gomer, then God will still make a way to deliver them. He says in 2.14, I will allure her, I'll bring her in the wilderness, and I'll speak tenderly to her, and I will give her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor 
a door of hope. A door of hope. Who is this door of hope? Is it not he against whom all the people cried, crucify him? He who was led out to his own death sentence uh, on a hill of trouble, who, who had no sin to confess but like a lamb going to be slaughtered, uh, went silently and, and he suffered the wrath of God? Is it not he who bears the scars of your and my sin on his own hands and feet? Who is this door of hope? Is it not the one who said in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Sin scars. It always scars. And you may have to endure God's discipline for your disobedience. You may have to endure his chastening for your growth. But if you believe in Jesus, you will never endure his judgment for your sin. Jesus has the scars to prove it. No sin goes unpunished, but if you believe in Jesus, your sin was punished on your behalf, and he bears your scars. Christians are people who have been freed from the penalty of sin. He was the perfect sacrifice, suffered the wrath of God, the reason we need not fear the scars of sin because he offers the scars of grace. Three guarantees Sin separates, it always separates, it shows, it always shows, and it scars, it always scars. A method for hunting monkeys has become a popular analogy. Legend has it that uh, you uh, can hunt for monkeys by putting food in a secure jar with a narrow opening, and it's wide enough the monkeys can squeeze their empty hand inside, but once they clench their fists to bring out the food, it no longer fits. And as the hunter approaches the monkey, he, he tries to get out, and he could let go and be free, but he wants it so bad that he just will not let go until he's caught a monkey trap. We began by asking a question. Why can't he let it go? But at the end, we realize it's not God who can't let this go. It's us. We won't let go. How far are we willing to go to hold on to our sin? in Aiken's case, to death. And yet how far is God willing to go to free men from sin? To death. The perfect union of justice and love. Jesus suffered your valley of trouble to be your door of hope. What is the buried treasure that's keeping you from Him? You have every, every reason to let it go and to cry out to, mercy, cry out to Jesus for mercy. Father, we thank you for uh, the hope that's offered us through your Son. We are convicted and recognize that there is great sin in our hearts and we see the pain of it and yet we know that there is always hope. I ask that you would comfort us as we expose our sin to you and cry out for mercy that we know is promised us in Jesus. May you encourage this, these people and Encourage us as we think about the love that you offer us in your son. In his name we pray, amen.